Okay, you can remain standing for the reading of God's word from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. If you have your Bible, it's also printed in your bulletin. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that it never goes out and returns to you empty, that it comes with uh, the promise that it will accomplish your purposes, and we pray that that will be so this morning uh, in our hearts, that we might know you better and uh, apply your words to, to our lives. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, at some point, we are all guilty of forgetting why we're doing what we're doing. We get in a groove, we uh, lose the thread, and we continue to do the same things, but somehow we have lost the, the why of what we're doing. That happens to all of us. It happens to individuals. It happens to churches. I'm not accusing you of that right now, but I am saying that uh, in between pastors is a natural time for a church like you to refresh yourself in some of the fundamentals, uh, to get back to basics, if you will. And I hope to help you do that this morning a little bit from a very well-known passage. But before we get to that, I want you to know something about me. I hate to travel. I'm a homebody. Uh, I hate absolutely everything about traveling. I like to drink my coffee sitting in my chair from my coffee cup. In fact, I would rather have my coffee cup with a little broken handle than your coffee cup, however fancy it may be, because the one with the broken handle is mine and not yours. I like to lay down on my mattress, sleep number 75, uh, in my room each night where the temperature is exactly where I put it, knowing that when I get up, my shirts will be in the second drawer next to me, uh, in the dresser, socks in the bottom, etc. Traveling disrupts all of these things, and it makes my life harder, and therefore, I hate it, and I don't want to go. Wherever it is, wherever you're thinking in your mind, I don't want to go there. I, I admit that this mentality is probably not especially uh, healthy for me, um, and of course there are some exceptions to this. We'll call it the no thank you, I'll stay right here mentality. Uh, it's not great for me, it's not great for people, but it is absolute categorical death for a church. And if you got in your car this morning and you drove around central Arkansas, you would see many churches uh, of all kinds of different denominations and backgrounds whose life is ebbing away uh, as it ages because over time the people there decided probably unconsciously uh, that they didn't want to go. They said, no thank you, we like doing what we're doing and we're going to stay right here. 
What's the problem with that? Well, a couple things that we'll talk about this morning. First, God is a goer himself. Second, uh, he's told us how to go um, and to go. So, again, first, God is a goer. Second, he has told us both to go and how to go. So let's look at our passage. Um, I'm sure you know that most of you that this passage in Christianity is called the Great Commission. It's very famous, Matthew 28. This is the last chapter of Matthew's gospel. It has a lot packed into it, as this passage has a lot packed into it. Uh, in fact, I won't even get into this passage. The, the, uh, it is one of our best um, uh, sections on the Trinity, right, which is not a very explicit doctrine in, in Christianity. But all that aside, uh, in, in Matthew, uh, a lot of things, of course, have happened up until this point. But even in this chapter, chapter 28, the first part is the resurrection of Jesus. That's pretty important. Uh, Mary Magdalene and Mary see the tombstone rolled back by an angel, and they see Jesus. Uh, it says his appearance is like lightning, his clothing white as snow. In between the resurrection scene and this great commission, the elders realize that Jesus has been raised, and so they start scheming. They plot and bribe these guards uh, to cover it up. And so finally we find the disciples waiting for him, the risen Jesus coming back to their neighborhood to give them final instructions on the mountain. Uh, this is a quiet, uh, beautiful scene. William Hendrickson says it is a scene of tender reminiscences. So you can imagine this is sort of like uh, veterans walking the, the beach at, at Normandy, uh, or that feeling of going back to your childhood home, sort of back to where it all began. And so Jesus begins, verse 18, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, one thing that I appreciate about the God of the Bible is that he uh, often gives us reasons. When God calls Abraham, he tells him, he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and you will be a blessing. When he gives Israel the Ten Commandments, he prefaces that with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so now... Jesus is set to give another great command to his people, but he graciously prefaces it when he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. God is not a God who tells us to jump and then we say how high with uh, no reason, no rationality behind that. So roll that sentence of Jesus's around in your mind a little bit. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, all power in this world and the one to come, what is seen, what is unseen, what is physical, what is spiritual, has been given to me. This is the exact sort of divine claim that got Jesus killed in the first place, right? Uh, and it would be a pretty gutsy claim. Uh, if somebody said this to you with no context, you would be rightly very skeptical. But this is coming out of the mouth of a man who was just dead. Not a little bit dead. Not in a swoon, if you've ever heard the swoon theory. Maybe he was unconscious. Uh, I think the Romans knew how to kill people pretty well. Uh, no, Jesus was dead. He was cold, lifeless, motionless in the tomb. There in the ground, his body lay. 
as the song says. Patrick Henry Reardon called him the Jesus of the folded napkin. What does that mean? Well, he's talking about uh, John chapter 20, where it says the kerchief, uh, that is the face cloth that was on Jesus in the tomb, was found uh, not lying with the linen cloths, John tells us, but folded up in a place by itself. So Reardon says this, That instant of the resurrection of Jesus was the most decisive moment in the history of the world. The law and the prophets were fulfilled in that moment. The existence of the human race took on an utterly new meaning. What was the first thing that Jesus did when the resurrection life came surging into his body? He reached up, he pulled the kerchief from his face, he folded it and set it aside as though it had been a napkin used at breakfast. The universal Christ, the eternal word in whom all things subsist, was still the same Jesus to whom an elementary act of neatness came naturally. He had just returned from the realm of hell where he had trampled down death by death. He was on the point of going forth as a giant to run his course. What did he do? He took a moment to fold the kerchief he had used. And only then did he stride out to change the direction of history and transform the lives of human beings. Have you met this person? Have you dealt with Jesus? Have you looked at him with your whole self, this collision of transcendence and eminence? Have you reckoned with his power and his humanity, his authority over all heaven and earth, over winds and waves and demons and hunger and sin and depravity and the human heart itself? And have you reckoned with his humanity? The Christ of the folded napkin. In Luke it says they gave him a piece of fish when he was risen and came back to them and he ate it. He's more powerful, more full of authority. He's more fully God than we realize. But he's also more human, more fully one of us than we can imagine. So if you haven't had a personal encounter of repentance and faith with this Jesus... And this is the most important thing for you to hear this morning. Because when he says all authority, and at the end of the passage, when he refers to the end of the age, he is talking about judgment day. Matthew 13, Jesus says the end of the age is the harvest. It's his return to judge the living and the dead. When a newspaper posed the question, what's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton, a great Catholic thinker, wrote in and said, Dear sirs, I am. That's where repentance starts, with knowing that I'm a broken person, I live in a broken world, and if I don't have the perfect life and the sacrificial death of Jesus applied to me, given to me by faith, then all is lost. That message, the good news of what Jesus has done, is what he is telling them to spread. And that message is the foundation of the church, uh, of this church, of the church worldwide, or the church militant, as we say, and, and even the saints in glory, and the church triumphant. And so it is all one piece, the Christ of the folded napkin, the one who left the tomb behind saying, go and tell them the good news, 
of what I have done and that I will return. But what sort of good news do you have to give to anyone if you haven't applied it to yourself, if you don't know it yourself? I mean, what do you have to say to a broken world um, before you have addressed the brokenness that is inside you? What's wrong with the world? I am. You are. That's where repentance and faith begins. Now you'll notice this is a broad, sweeping command. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Go into all nations, teaching them all I have commanded you, and I will be with you all the days. Well, who can say that? Well, the, the annals of Christian history are full of people who took this command, who took the commission to go and pushed it to its absolute limit. Uh, people who weren't maybe as worried about their coffee cups and their sleep numbers as I am. Uh, uh, the book for this is, is by Ruth Tucker. Uh, it is called From Jerusalem to Arian Jaya. I don't know where Arian Jaya is, so um, I hope someone in here does. I assume it's a long way away. Uh, this book profiles missionaries like William Carey, um, some of the more famous ones and some lesser famous ones too. Carey was the father of modern missions. Uh, he translated the Bible into Bengali and Arabic and Hindi and Sanskrit. Or John G. Patton, who was the, the Scottish uh, Presbyterian missionary to the New Hebrides, uh, these uh, very remote islands. And uh, John G. Patton was killed, almost killed, so many different times that as I read his biography, I like lost count or I became desensitized to all the times someone tried to kill him. Like, how many times can one person dodge a spear? Apparently many times uh, in the name of the gospel. Or maybe a lesser-known name, Gladys Aylward. Uh, she was a one-time parlor maid who had such a burning desire to do missionary work in China that she got on a train in Liverpool and went east and then didn't get off the train until Russian troops in Siberia forced her to at gunpoint in the middle of Siberia and she made it to China and she did gospel work there and the reality is that these men and women are just shadows and whispers of the one true missionary Jesus Christ the one who stepped down out of heaven to come here or as one of my favorite hymns says it says thou who was rich beyond all splendor all for love's sake became poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender. Sapphire paved courts for a stable floor. No one has given up more for the gospel message than Jesus Christ. No one has gone farther for the gospel. There's a scene in the movie, uh, Slumdog Millionaire, if you remember that. It came out maybe 10 years ago where the protagonist, who is probably six or seven, gets locked in this sort of raised uh, outhouse right when his hero, the movie star Amitabh, arrives. And so he has to get to Amitabh. And he has a picture of him, and he looks at it, he looks at the picture, and he looks down into the depths of the outhouse, which is his only way out, and he holds his nose, and he jumps just so he could get to him. 
Well, Jesus coming to earth is that in reverse. It is the hero jumping down into the muck and the mire of this world so that he could get to us, so that he could get to people who would despise and reject him. In other words, Jesus can tell us to go because he already did. Because he is the great missionary. Because he came and he died and he rose and he conquered. So, if Jesus did all that, if he's giving us our marching orders, then we need to be very careful, I think. And this is our second part here. Very detailed about what he is saying here in this passage. A lot of this kind of following materials from New Testament scholar uh, Dr. Mike Kruger So let's look at the command or the commission very carefully now. There's a very specific verb construction in this passage. Uh, Three of these verbs are participles, which means they end in ing. And then there is one imperative, and that is make disciples. And that is the centerpiece of the passage. In other words, the phrasing is this, going, make disciples, baptizing, and teaching them. Or you can think of it like a triangle and make disciples is is in the middle. And the three points are going, teaching, and baptizing. Again, make disciples is the command. And the other three clarify how. By going, by preaching and teaching the word, and by the sacraments. In other words, in the Great Commission, Jesus is not so much saying, okay, you, 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 and you, Go evangelize someone. Uh, As Mike Kruger says, the Great Commission is, is not just about converting people. It is about churching people. What's in view here is not really the sort of evangelism where you sit down over coffee one-on-one with someone else uh, and uh, tell them your story or tell them the gospel, which is great and a good thing to do. Uh, But that is not exactly what the Great Commission is about. What's actually happening here is that Jesus is saying, go and plant churches. Because the word and sacraments happen ultimately in the church. Word and sacraments are the two marks of the church. Uh, Traditionally, the third mark um, in our tradition is is church discipline um, or the sort of shepherding that happens. Uh, I think that that is implied when Jesus says, teaching them to obey. The implication is the overseeing of the flock by the elders. Look what happens here. So we have word, sacrament, and implied church discipline, the three marks of the church. And that is why we can say with confidence that the Great Commission is about planting churches. Now, if that's what the Great Commission is about, then I think that we might have a small problem because that means that the Christian life revolves around, A, somebody standing up front telling me what I'm supposed to do and believe, B, I'm not sure exactly how you guys take communion here, but at Christ Church Conway, uh, it looks like eating a small piece of torn pita and a tiny glass of wine of what we might call questionable vintage, we'll put it that way, <clears throat> and see submitting my beliefs and actions to a very fallible group of men who have the right to tell me that I am wrong, uh, and in certain uh, cases, 
if I refuse to repent or make a change, that I would receive, ultimately, expulsion from the church if I am unrepentant. Um, does that sound like a real hot seller out on the streets? <laughs> does that sound like it's going to take over uh, social media anytime soon? That you can make some great memes out of that or, or get a lot of likes or retweets? Word, sacraments, and discipline. Or we might say, well, that's a really good like base for a cake, right? That's the, the eggs and the flour and the sugar. But then we have to sort of dress it up with some fancy icing and sprinkles and other stuff, right? Uh, what about parties and technology and advertising? What about music and children's ministry and social media? Well, those things are good as far as they go, and, and we use them and we should use them. I think if you're a church in 2016 and you don't have any type of social media presence, then you are probably being unfaithful in that area. Um, the same thing for uh, potlucks, retreats, children's ministry, clean bathrooms. Uh, all of those things are good and very necessary, but they are not exactly what God has attached his promises to. In other words, those things are bridesmaids. But the church, in her preaching of the word, in her sacraments, in the governing of the elders, that is the bride. Jesus has chosen her. She is the one that our eyes are glued to. So that the, the parties and the advertising and the music and all of those things are just bridesmaids there to support and to make beautiful the church of Jesus Christ. So again we think, okay, word, sacraments, discipline, but once those things are in place, shouldn't we be doing some, <clears throat> some other things? Shouldn't the church maybe expand uh, her mission a little bit? And what about hospitals? What about homeless shelters and education and community outreach well, I think two things can help us think through these issues. The first is an understanding of the church and the kingdom. And the second is an understanding of the offices of Jesus Christ. So the church of Christ and the kingdom of God are connected, but they are not synonymous. Uh, the key to, to understanding the business and the mission of the church, I think, um, the church is the ecclesia, the called out ones, the gathering, the institution of redeemed people. The, uh, the kingdom, on the other hand, is the place where God's sovereign rule comes to concrete expression. And this includes the church, but it also involves your home, your family, your work. And this is where we get into the realm of hospitals and uh, homeless shelters, community outreach, things that Christians should certainly be doing, things that the church should be working to enable, but they are not technically, formally, properly the mission of the church. So if you hear someone saying, as I hear um, often in Conway, so I'm assuming the same thing's happening here, uh, if you hear someone who is really high uh, or, or who is down on the sort of corporate worship that we are doing right now on Sunday morning, but who is really high on the idea of like, well, church happens during the week, then I would argue that they are confused, that they have conflated church and kingdom uh, and that they're confused about the mission of the church. 
But how can we be so confident that the church should be about words, sacraments, and discipline? Why these three things? Well, I think one reason is that if the church is the body and the building and the bride of Christ, that we should expect the church's mission to mirror Jesus' own. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked Peter, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. We don't do a lot of anointing anymore. Uh, we may some when, when people are sick. Um, but the, anointing is a concept that is a little bit foreign to us. But in the Old Testament, anointing was a very normal part of life. And there were three offices where this happened in particular. First, uh, prophets were anointed. So a prophet was someone who came with the message of God to the people. Second, priests were anointed. Uh, the priests stood in the gap between God and the people, offering sacrifices. And third, uh, kings were anointed. So men like David received the anointing to set them apart as rulers. Well, when Peter says that Jesus is the anointed one, he is saying that Jesus is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. He is the final word from God. He is the once-for-all sacrifice to bridge the gap of sin between God and man. And, and he is the king with all authority uh, who will reign for eternity. And so the church is about the same things, guarding the true word, the gospel, rightly administering the sacraments that God has given us, baptism in the Lord's Supper, and exercising authority when the sheep of the flock stray to bring them back into the fold. So what's a disciple? That is the imperative here, right? That is the, the center of the triangle well, I think, quite simply, a disciple is one who is devoted to these three things. A disciple is someone who hears the word, who repents and believes, who receives the sign and the seal of the covenant of grace and baptism and comes in humility to the table week in and week out or month in and month out and who is willing to submit themselves to the rule of the elders who represent the head of the church, Jesus himself. The Great Commission is about going and making disciples, in other words, according to Scripture's definition and not our own. And if you work in campus ministry the way I do, you hear a lot of definitions of what a disciple is <laughs> that don't sound anything like this, um, and that create a, um, a crushing burden. Uh, honestly, on college students. But I digress. Um, finally, what about go? Uh, Matthew's whole gospel has a very global emphasis, right? He is very interested in the Gentiles and this all nations idea. That in itself is a very old idea, of course. Uh, God told Abraham that all nations of the earth would be blessed in him. And Matthew's own gospel, not coincidentally, begins with Abraham. The going, in other words, has always been a part of the gospel uh, because of the fall, because the fall set us to wandering. Finally, well, in light of this, we might ask, should we all be in Africa right now, right? Um, what does it mean to go in our context 
Well, I think it was John Piper, I believe, who said that when it comes to missions, you are either a goer, you are a sender, or you are disobedient. <laughs> so the Great Commission is for us. It is broad and inclusive. It includes your literal next-door neighbor. It includes the college campuses. It includes Africa and China and the ends of the earth. And, of course, you can't do it all. Even you as a church uh, can't do it all. And so you have to ask. You have to take the going and the sending to heart and ask, what has God given me? What are my spheres of influence? Uh, How can I be faithful in this going and the sending? These are wisdom issues, right? God is not going to appear to you or give you a sign about who uh, to support or where to go um, other than uh, your giving in context of the church, of course. Uh, If you are responsible, for instance, for a special needs member of your family, you are probably not called to go into international missions, right? Uh, Or if you have a job that is a financial blessing, then you may be doing more sending than going. The question is, how can you best make disciples either directly or indirectly. I said that the gospel has always had a go element. But in the grand scheme of the Bible, something very interesting happens. Um, Remember, in the Old Testament, for a long time, the flow of the gospel was about coming in and not going out. Uh, In the Old Covenant, things sort of fold in. God's blessings fold into the nation of Israel uh, and even more into the temple and even more into the Holy of Holies. In other words, God's blessing, his presence is very concentrated in the Old Testament. But in the New Covenant, things begin to unfold or more properly, they begin to explode outwards. That is why right now, if you think about it, 25% of Christians are in Europe, 25% are in Central and South America, 22% in Africa, 15% but growing in Asia, and 12 to 15% in North America. It is the only major religion that is spread out like this because, because God made it to go. That's how we made the gospel Uh, So that the gospel is no longer primarily about coming in, it is about going out with the good news, with solid teaching, with the new covenant signs that we've talked about. I think it was C.S. Lewis, we'll wrap up with this, who said that we as humans have a desire to be on the inside of some invisible ring. And that so much of uh, our own human activity, that that is its mainstay. This idea to be on the inside. The Great Commission really explodes that mentality. It says that the gospel, the things of Christianity are not for keeping. That they are for giving away. That this is not the back cave. This is not an inner ring. It's not made up of people who are super spiritual So we should aim to be a group of people, to be a church, who is satisfied with the marks of the church, but is never satisfied about who is getting to experience the marks of the church. In other words, we go because God did the going first, but we go according to his instructions, and we go for his glory, 
And we go that the church of Jesus Christ might be made beautiful. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your church and all the things you have given it to uh, be a blessing uh, to us, to your people, um, and to be a blessing to uh, the community around us, the world around us. We pray that we would be faithful in going uh, the way that you have told us to go and not um, coming up with ideas uh, of our own, of what a disciple looks like or what we should be doing. Uh, instead, we pray that we would be faithful to your word and that we would be uh, generous, loving people um, who convey the good news to all that we come into contact with. We pray that you would do this through your spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.